If you have ever said, I like my men like I like my Christology, open and relational, or I like my self-investment like I like my John Waters characters, divine, then I have the interview for you. Today, I am talking with Trip Fuller and a more open and relational man you'll be hard to find about his book, Divine Self-Investment, an open and relational constructive Christology. Uh, out now is Sacrosage. Trip Fuller, uh, I'm sure many of you know, is a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Edinburgh and did his PhD at Claremont Graduate University. But he is famous, or famously known, as the ho- founder and host of the Homebrewed Christianity podcast. But this podcast is Love, Rinse, Repeat, recorded on Dark and Jung land by me, Liam Miller, he, him, his, a minister in the Uniting Church in Australia. I'm excited to have you here and excited to have Trip here as we talk about his new work, Divine Self-Investment. Trip Fuller, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat. Oh, I'm ready to get rinsed and repeated. <laughs> well, yeah, you've got the, the hair and the beard, so, you know, it could take us a little while, so we'll, uh, you know, settle in, folks. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Lots of hair. Yeah. Well, I was thinking before when I was, you know, thinking of, you know, you're, you're very much in a land built for beards uh, now. Like I think Edinburgh, you know, you just associate, you know, that, that kind of pocket of the world with, with, with beards and, you know, especially with the, you know, the background we've got here, um, you know, it's even more so you just feel like you're really just like, you know, living into, into your context. Well, I, yeah, yeah. The, it, it is easier to live into a Scottish one because um, uh, the ability to grow facial hair um, and uh, I could got that down and you feel like you're, you're going back in time though. If you use, if you've spent a long time in Los Angeles where an old building is in the seventies and then now I am at new college at the university of Edinburgh and we are the new college is celebrating its 175th anniversary. Still just new kids on the block. Still. I know. Or fresh faced. And (laughs) And there's a giant castle outside my window. (laughs) It's, It's, it's something. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's, that's great. Well, so we are here. We're going to talk about divine self-investment an open and relational constructive Christology, part of the studies in open and relational theology uh, with Sacra Sage, which uh, has come out this year uh, and is very exciting. So I'm excited to talk about it. Just for those who are coming to this brand new, uh, no experience with the book or yourself, um, just give us the broad pitch for, for the book and I guess what you hope, what you were hoping it achieved as it went out into the world. Um, so the book is, uh, I mean, the subtitle, like an open relational constructive Christology kind of gets at it. Um, the, the title divine self-investment is, uh, the kind of running theme explored in it, but open and relational theologies are, uh, it's a group in the Academy for, the study of religion, right? And they kind of uh, run across different denominations and confessional commitments. But what they hold in common is that the uh, God and the world mutually affect one another, uh, that the future is open, meaning the movement through temporality is something that uh, is shaped by that God-world relationship, but genuinely impacts each other. And we don't know what's going to happen ultimately um, uh, moment to moment. Uh, and so that relationality, that openness, and then the other, the third element for open relational theologies is that uh, they usually emphasize 
um, that the open and loving, uh, open relational part is nested in God's uh, loving character. And mm. so um, they kind of uh, emphasize the essence of love, which requires the type of relationality and openness that other more classical Christian uh, theologies uh, find problematic for <laughs> their account of divine perfection. And so the book is engaging um, contemporary Christology, six different thinkers, um, um, the different parts of Christology, the person and work or the traditional categories, uh, and and doing so with uh, an open relational lens, which means you are talking about, um, because it's Christology, the existential register, like your commitment and identification as a disciple, that Jesus is Lord, uh, that kind of thing. Um, you're dealing with a historical register in relation to the historical Jesus uh, and uh, and how that shaped our Christological thinking. And then you're dealing with a metaphysical register, namely like what you think about the God-world relationship. And so um, the the book is a constructive pro- uh, engagement through that assuming the open relational framework. Yeah, great. Thank you. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll unpack a lot of that as we, as we go. Uh, I guess the one I want to jump into, just, just first, you know, just staying with the open and relational side of things. Now, now um, regular listeners might have heard our Thomas J. Ord, a couple of episodes with him, uh, and, and, you know, sort of come across this term a little bit. I guess I have two questions here. If someone goes wholesale in on the open and relational bed, they're like, yeah, I mean, this is my, this is my jam now. What do you think is the, the number one benefit of, of letting that be the thing? And I guess... The sub one is if, if someone goes, you know what, I'm just going to put the toes in the water. I'm just going to let it be something that allows, I'm just going to allow it to ask questions of my theological thinking, not necessarily be the whole schema in which I uh, do all my theological thinking. What's the best benefit they're going to come across? So there's the wholesale jump to the deep end and the, the toe dipping. Well, yeah, so wholesale, I'd say the biggest benefit is either um, not dodging questions around the problem of evil and suffering which I know Tom's talked with you about. Another is uh, a, a lot easier to engage uh, religion science stuff, which is mm-hmm. uh, my current post at the University of Edinburgh is in religion science. So um, that's probably the two biggest wholesale mm-hmm. ones. I mean, I think of more, but you said one and I already managed it. <laughs> uh, the, if you start in the conversation, aren't wholesale, um, you know, I'm going hardcore, open and relational. Um, it, it does mean that you get to relate to scripture differently. Um, one of the, and this for me was one of the most entry, an entry point as a, a rural Baptist growing up in the South. Like I read the Bible a lot. And the first time I found out what apparently Orthodox Christianity believed that God was omnipotent, that God didn't change because God was perfect and stuff. Mm-hmm. I raised my hand in class and was like, have you read the Bible? Does Thomas Aquinas, has he, has he read it before? Right. And I'm just like quoting Bible passages and the professor is like trip. Uh, that's not Orthodox Christianity. That's process philosophy and it's not compatible with Christianity. So um, I just went to the library and read a book and said, I, I, I don't agree. Um, so, but it really was going um, that experience uh, the, the God in scripture that is personally invested in the world and the experience most Christians have, um, their personal piety, um, that, uh, that's not a less than accurate depiction. And that the real depiction of God is this, uh, one that is, uh, 
wonderfully compliant with uh, philosophers not shaped by the biblical testimony of the people of Israel and the early church. Thank you for that. That's great. So there you go, folks. If you are interested, there's some there's some pros right there. Uh, so Trip, you've done this is your second book. The first book you wrote uh, a few years back now was part of the Homebrew Christianity Intro Guide, which is an intro to Jesus. And here we've got Constructive Christology. Um, so I guess the simple question is, why why are you so interested in Jesus? Uh, you know what's what's <laughs> what's keeping you it's keeping you on the Jesus train? Uh, you know, two kind of you know different books, though. There's some open and relational stuff in the first as well. But like, um, I guess yeah, what because like you know, I guess in some ways, I think if I think of the open and relational stuff, most of what I'm coming across or thinking about is well, not this is maybe wrong, but at least what I'm what my impression is is a lot about God, the you know, either the Godhead or mm-hmm. God, the Father of Jesus Christ, you know, what, how we might um, put it, but, like, it's more about the, that, less maybe about the, let's talk about that specific one person. Um, so, yeah, I guess is why, you know, that's the, the broad question is why are you so interested in Jesus? And I guess you can kind of angle that into um, in, in this particular register. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, uh, the second one, in, as an open relational thinker, I think open and relational theologians tend to be either theocentric or spirit-centric, right? Mm-hmm. So like Grace G. Sun Kim, who's on the podcast regularly, would be a spirit-centered, open and relational thinker. Um, and uh, and then you get someone like Tom, who the doctrine of God's his primary interest and such. So um, yeah, for me, the the <laughs> that also meant like I was already into thinking about Jesus. Here's something I could write on that I don't <laughs> know, that I know this community hasn't written a ton on, mm-hmm. so I should go do it. Um, and I already like doing, I already was fascinated with Christology for other reasons, but, but I think the real answer is, uh, you know, you don't pick where you find yourself in the world. You don't pick your family, where point in history. And I was, I found myself in a, in a world where, um, the language and myths and rituals and everything that mediated the, the, the sacred and, uh, animated these intense religious experiences, the community, uh, that inspired me, uh, animated me to care about different, uh, particular justice issues and that type of stuff was always connected to Jesus. So, um, as someone who, who, has the a deep suspicion about me being in this tribe for this reason that I didn't pick it, pick it in a sense. So wrestling with Jesus and the questions and challenges to um, kind of just a basic naive reception of it has been a part of my faith since I was young. Like when I was in fifth grade, I, uh, I read all the passion narratives in the four gospels during uh, Holy week mm. and I charted it out and I called my parents into the room um, Baptists create charts for Bible things. It's it, it's really it really not helpful all the time, uh, <laughs> especially foreign policies involved and bears associate with particular um, nation states. But uh, I, I said my Bible's broken. Uh, he doesn't even die on the same day, <laughs> and sometimes he goes through walls. Other times he has a hole and you can touch it. Sometimes he eats like. He ascends, but then he's back down again. Like, you know, and they're like, no, that's how it is. Uh, It's not broken. And that made me go, what in the world? Like, one, they should have had a better editor, right? (laughs) Uh, 
But actually the church condemned Tatian, who was a heretic in the early church, who created a harmony gospel where you didn't have any of those problems. And it was really popular. Uh, so there's something about the multiplicity of divergent testimonies to the presence of Christ uh, that was essential to the life of the early church. And, um, and I think it is to the body of Christ now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so like from that moment of going like, wow, something more is going on here than this line of truths that you then point out and be like, that's true. It's whatever's going on in it. Mm-hmm. And that fascinated me and has continued to do so in my you know, philosophy degrees and uh, uh, then doing theology and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. And so, and I think a lot of Christians today that have left a expression of the faith where they were told, like, here's the line of things you're supposed to believe. Um, assume that's actually normative uh, for Christianity. And then, so then they might get around to some God or spirit stuff, but like the Jesus thing's just kind of awkward. It comes with uh, the kind of evidence that demands a verdict baggage or like horrible apologetic moves like which is my first book kind of make fun of um, like Lord liar, lunatic go, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and, and I, and I, and I think the, for me, the discovery personally was, yeah, like I could have a deep relationship with God mediated by Jesus. And I don't need this like flattened out, perfect collection of truths. And you can use your brain and wrestle with all these different uh uh, questions and experiences in the body of Christ today uh, and and try to construct something. And so uh, the the book is a sophisticated academic endeavor and kind of a doxology from my own experience of faith. And I hope that it gives permission for more people to attend back to the gift they found in the in their early experience to say with Jesus and the, and come back to them in different ways rather than feeling uh, that uh, that winnowing process is a, uh, it is impossible. So. Yeah. Thank you for that. I think that comes, you know, that's a really helpful aspect of the book that like, this is something that you can pick up, you know, even if you're not like, you know, a member of the open and relational uh, wing of, 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 um, AAR, you know, it's, it's, it's something that, you know, if you're wrestling with, you know, what is the significance of Jesus in this time and for me and, and for the church that I'm a part of, or that I was a part of, or could maybe be a part of like that, that comes through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's really positive. So I guess, I, uh, do you think yeah. this is something I, I mean, I've been thinking about just in hearing people read the book that weren't academics, you know, the Academy, a lot of the Christology questions now are ones more and more people just have. And I think this is a growing thing, right? Mm-hmm. That we're aware of more and more challenges that intellectuals used to only be the ones that knew. And then they would process it, come up with some really cool way of explaining it to future ministers. And then the ministers go repeat it as if that's just clear as day in the Bible. And then you go out in the world and go like, well, we said this, but why do we, there's this other verse that says this, that I don't even know what to do with it. And um, like, if you go to a liberal church, they're like Galatians 3.28. And then you're like, well, obviously we are inclusive. And then if you go to a different church, they don't mention that verse, you pick a different one. But there's always this, this other group of people that did the real thinking and then told the people, here's, here's the verse to tag on to our opinion. Um, when it goes to Christology, think of uh, religious pluralism. Um, uh, uh, supersessionism with the people of Israel, uh, divine action. Because mm. if God's in Jesus, then how in the world is God related to the world? How does God act? And how does God act in any unique and particular way with Jesus? That's a complicated thing. Um, then you get to the cross. You're like, 
Jesus dies on a cross. There's this thing about the resurrection. What the hell? And um, does it, did Jesus have to die? Like, there are all these mm. big questions that more and more people ask. And uh, the surprising thing to me and hearing the responses um, is how many really, really good re- questions I've gotten back from people that have no context in the academy, but they have the real life of faith and then are seeing these resources that the academy has kind of been cloistered off. And then they ask better questions than I've gotten in, uh, uh, from some of my peers. And, and I think that's like why you know, we both do podcasts is that uh, there are plenty of high quality nerds in the church who would greatly benefit from what the Academy cloisters off. Um, and so I'm excited uh, to hear yeah. from people reading the book. And uh, I think that uh, so many of the questions that people feel unable to ask in the life of the church are, are ones that must be asked. And we mm. probably shouldn't ask, outsource the asking to uh, just people with a lot of degrees and student loans. Mm. Yeah. I'm not a hundred percent. And I think even like you get to, you know, you, you, the more you kind of think about it and think about the questions you have, the more you can also then see and identify um, Christological questions or faith questions that are, that are underlying a lot of like just the public discourse Right, like yeah. I, I always come back to there was an article like written, you know, just in whatever some Australian newspaper, which was kind of talking about like you know, you know, Jesus just being a good bloke. You know, he's the kind of guy who like you know show up early and help you like build the new accessibility ramp at your bowling club <laughs> or whatever, and he do this and he do that, and you're like, you know, and for whatever political point, I guess they were like trying to say that like you know, unlike what whatever Christians over here are saying about Jesus and, and current political issue number two. But, like, it was just interesting. Like that's, like, right there, it's a, it's a theological claim, right, of, of who is Jesus and what was his significance. Was it that he exemplared good behaviour and that's the best thing you can get from it or mm-hmm. is it something else? Like, you know, but but unless you've kind of you know, been invited into these questions of Christology, you're not really going to identify that's really what's happening. Um, and you're not really going to identify that, like, you know, maybe you don't just, you know, you what, how you interrogate a position like that rather than just dismissing it. Cause you can actually say, well, actually that's, you know, a whole theological strand of Christology is essentially that with, with, with a little bit extra thrown in, you know? So it's like, you know, but the more you kind of are aware of what's going on and asking the questions and seeing the work that people are doing, the better you can kind of engage those and not necessarily in that kind of what's flattened out apologetics thing, but actually engage it from a, well, that's interesting. And there's something going on there and let's, let's, you know, talk more. Yeah. No, no, that's definitely true. And the um, though I have to say there's only certain places in the in on the globe where Jesus would be a good bloke building an accessibility ramp to a bowling club. Like I, I, that was high quality contextual references right there. <laughs> so the book uh, you you want to focus on that you have you kind of touched on this at the beginning, that that an open and relational uh, account. Where did I write this? needs to include the historical Jesus, the existential register of faith, and the metaphysical referent to God. Uh, and I mentioned kind of the relationship between the three of these, particularly with, with the first, with, you know, because sometimes when people are talking about historical Jesus, once they start using that, now, now they're getting into a whole field of studies, you know, with, with coloured beads uh, that, that's often like, you know, seen as, you know, an entirely deconstructive field, uh, and, and, if, and, you know, with, with ambivalence, if not hostility, to any kind of understanding of Jesus in the register of faith uh, and yeah. uh, with a referent to, to God that is more than just, you know, narrative. So I guess 
what are you thinking when you're when you're thinking about including the historical Jesus and how are you thinking of of you know kind of getting to that person? Yeah, yeah. So um, that question is all has always been fascinating to me. Uh, and you know, the interesting thing about open and relational theology is that you you don't have uh, a world where God's not present and God only shows up by divine intervention, say to incarnate Jesus, right? Like, oh, Jesus is the incarnation. Mm-hmm. And so now we can talk about God in the world, but we couldn't before that. Yeah. Um, a lot of biblical studies is, um, and this isn't a, this isn't a critique of it. It's only a critique of the way it shapes the theological imagination of the church, that the tools of history do not suppose that each moment of becoming is the process of God and the world relating to each other. So history is told as if it is uh, a, a, a story where the, the agency in it is, you know, accidental and then some historical agency, but not divine, right? So uh, when you talk about the historical Jesus and then you build, and then you do Christology from below with it, you, you so often that from below and that historical Jesus is uh, includes metaphysical assumptions that open relational thinkers find problematic, right? Like if each moment of history is God and the world, um, uh, the fruit of God and the world, God's own investment in that history and the world's receptivity to it, then to describe the history of this as if God's not a part of it is a, a deflationary act if you're doing theology, right? So, um, mm. the, so you know, there's a whole chapter that's rather... Uh, detail about engaging historical Jesus studies on this, but you know, the reference point to me is, is Jesus's own relationship to his disciples. Um, and I think a lot of liberal and conservative Christians just miss how the existential register connects to mm. the metaphysical and historical. And if you just look at Peter's confession story in the gospels or the synoptics, you get Jesus say, who do they say I am? Right. And they're like, well, maybe you're John the Baptist with your heads reattached. Maybe it's Elijah come back. That would be pretty sweet. Um, you know, and that you get these same type of things today where, well, maybe you're a wondering cynic sage that practiced open table commensiality, which challenges the purity codes of Rome and <laughs> religious elitism. John Dominic Cross, or you've internalized the mission of Israel uh, such that, you know, and you get NT right, or, or you're like, uh, well, obviously you're the second person of the Trinity because uh, you are Isaiah 53, five uh, being performed. And this is high quality evidence. It demands a verdict. And if you don't agree that Jesus is indeed the Christ, you're uh, obtuse. And you're telling me that my savior is a liar or crazy, right? Like, and you get that this, there's something about our normal history that if you're just honest and look at the facts, this evidence demands this verdict. And it could be moral influence, liberalism that turns you into a liberal Democrat in America because you're uncomfortable with the eschatological prophet stuff and you become a Jesus seminar person. Or it could be you're an apologist and basically everyone that ever disagreed with you is somehow unable to be rational. And you can see those debates. And what's funny is they give all these answers and then Jesus says, well, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus doesn't go, thank you, excellent beadwork seminar. And he doesn't say, well, that the verdict was indeed demanded. He says, my heavenly father revealed that to you. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there's something in that. 
that says like there are real people had a real encounter of the real historical Jesus and the the confession you were the Christ son of the living God is not demanded mm. by that historicity that the gift of faith that vision includes the subjectivity of the individual here Peter responding to this contingent finite fully human being in such a way that he mediates and bears the divine presence in a way that changes Peter's own identity, right? From that moment on, he has this deep allegiance to Jesus and he follows, even though he gets it wrong, right? Just a few chapters later, um, Jesus is like, wow, um, now that we're all on the same page, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. Got to have some showdown with the politics and the religion getting all crazy. And Peter's like, Jesus, ah, little brand management idea here. They're going to kill you. And Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. But so like in the uh, in the biblical text, you get the sense that the confession, Jesus is the Christ, comes from this existential register. I'm showing up, giving myself to this way in the world, uh, giving allegiance to this vision. And I don't quite know exactly what that entails. And so the Gospels are not trying to answer the question, who is Jesus? But uh, what does it mean for him to be the Christ? What is the content of the confession, not the appropriate title? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that existential register is uh, is the task of theology or the task of the disciple. So I, I talk about Christology as a disciple's discipline and not something you do if you aren't existentially engaged. Because unless you identify Jesus as the Christ, son of the living God, you don't discuss a historical person and think this is the best place to talk about who God is. Mm-hmm. And you don't discuss this person and go, uh, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me or be baptized or eat my flesh. Like all the things that are at the heart of Christianity, I think have those three registers. And so of the existential engagement, and in with the body of Christ, the the, of the community, it's a reference to the actual person of Jesus, right? We uh, we fail when we make Jesus not Jewish. We fail. When, you see, the historical register holds us accountable. We fail when we interpret his historical life as if it's compliant to empire and not uh, put to death by the state. Like uh, the historical reference is essential, and idolatry comes when you don't take it seriously. But I also think that. Uh, um, the, the reason we make that confession, the reason we hold ourselves accountable to it is because we think it reveals not just what one person who did active resistance to empire and gave a vision of a divine reality that knows us and loves us completely. It's because it's actually true about who God is. And we've experienced it. So as a minister, which I am as well as an academic, um, I have baptized lots of people. And I say, I baptize you. My brother, sister, uh, brethren uh, in Christ, right? You, you, whatever was happening, and you baptize into the body of Christ. Uh, I have served the Eucharist hundreds of times, thousands probably, and uh, and uh, when it's a congregation I serve, I sit and I wait and I try to learn everyone's name and look at them and say like Liam, and then give give you the bread. Because this is the gift, right? So, so much of what is at the heart of Christian faith is because this particular story has so tied up our own identity and mediated the reality of God um, that I think you need all three registers. But that doesn't mean you should opt out of thinking it through uh, critically 
and faithfully. So uh, the book is doing that. Like, but you, you don't read it and go like, well, Tripp was a minister and this is probably why he did this. So it, 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 it definitely performs nerdiness. Yes. Uh, but, you know, underneath it, it was, um, it comes from uh, a frustration it, that I have about a lot of academic theology that it is more looking to impress its peers rather than perform the vocational task of being a theologian of the church. Mm. And, uh, and because of the podcast, and I'm sure you've had this experience where you you're helping give the gift of the Academy to the church and you have thousands of ministers that listen, like, uh, you know, the most episodes will get like 40 to 50,000, uh, uh, listens. And when I do surveys, like, 12, 15% are ministers. That's like uh, 2,000, 3,000 ministers or so. Well, like, and they are very interested in the theology, but they're also interested in it because they're tending to the living body of Christ yes. today. But you're always tending to just the people in your congregation. And so theologians, I feel like our job is to listen as, as, with as much breadth and depth and then uh, to articulate back to the church what we see from this kind of second order distance perspective and go like, does this make sense? Is it helping you um, uh, articulate uh, the gift of faith, the challenge of the gospel? And, and so anyway, that's a long answer. I, you should uh-huh. just cut me off, but I, th- that's why I, I liked, I was excited about doing, uh, you know, specific work on constructive Christology and um, the image of self-investment that runs through it is not just uh, God's self-investment, but there's this, uh, um, it's a, it becomes a, a model for thinking through our own discipleship in life of, mm. uh, as disciples, that the fidelity to God you see in the person of Jesus is um, a calling and a task for um, the body of Christ today. Mm. So, mm. Thank you. That, that's, and that's a really important, that, that final point, especially, so another positive I was thinking about with the book, so you kind of within an open relational Christology, and you were touching on this a bit at the beginning of that last response, that you, it kind of shows that unlike, you know, certain other strains of Christology where all of a sudden the way God engages with the world radically alters at zero, zero AD. Um, like it just, it just, God's like, hey, let's try something very different. Uh, I'm going to get really directly involved here. And, 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 and what you're saying is with an open relational account, you know, you're, you're you're kind of, you know, it gives you this opportunity to see how the incarnation has a certain consistency with the rest of the way God is with the world. Uh, and I guess then I'm thinking of how that can help us to avoid certain ways of reading the Bible, certain kind of supersessionist ways where, um, you know, God improves the system and, and, and thank God for it. Now we're here. Um, that uh, rather, in, and so we kind of can think about the way God is with us differently by thinking about the way God is with Jesus and Jesus with God differently and in the world differently. So yeah, just thinking about that as a positive and whether you have any reflections there. Yeah. I I think that um, the, there's always a challenge for Christians when you're, when most of your sacred text is written by people who don't agree with your last third of it, you know? Um, And in, in, there are two different parts of it that, or ways I kind of deal with it in the book is one is when Christians read something, they're reading it as Christians. 
and they're engaging it with that existential register. And if you notice, Jesus's response is not to demonize anyone that doesn't identify him uh, as the Christ, but he intends to the fidelity, the discipleship, the praxis of those that do, right? So he doesn't like when the rich young ruler walks away, he walks away sad and stuff, but Jesus doesn't like to turn around and then just go, well, that sack of, you know, like goes, <laughs> this is not how it works. He doesn't interact with people with this, like unless, uh, unless you get on my team, you're screwed kind of mm-hmm. thing. Um, uh, despite how uh, some people want to read uh, John 14. Um, the, uh, so th- if there's one part that the existential register means um, that the way a Christian relates to uh, and inherits the history of Israel is different than a Jewish person does because they have a different existential engagement with the tradition. Uh, the other part is that an open relational uh, Christology or is is reading the history of Israel in such that Jesus isn't an aberration, but the fruit. And I call it the fruit of God's self-investment. Um, and I use the image of the Didache, where the Didache calls uh, Jesus the fruit of the vine of David. And so I try to I try to say that you know, it, it, for an open relational theology, in every moment there are three different powers at work. There's the past, which is the fruit of the God world relationship, right? And then there is um, the uh, possible. Uh, God's valuation of what is possible in a given moment. So in God's call or lure um, is for whatever <clears throat> the most beautiful, true, loving, zesty, adventurous thing can be. And then the third power is the creature's own uh, agency. So we are co-creators with God moment to moment. And whatever our response to God looks like, whatever measure of fidelity we muster, then shapes the possibilities for God in the next moment to work with us and through us. And so one, oh, just, 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 also, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. just oh, I think one time you just kind of talked about like a, just to help folks who are maybe following this for the first time, uh, again, one, one of your podcasts, one time you used the, you know, the, the image of eating a pizza in that in mm-hmm. a sense, God knows, uh, you know, the, the whole history of how you came to this pizza and how the pizza came to you, knows all the possible bites you could take, but then still kind of, your move in terms of co-participating in this of what bite you take. And then at that moment, God now knows all the other possible bites that you could take because you went to the corner crust and this is what's available to you now. And then, but again, it goes to you now of where, where you go. Am I kind of getting that kind of, uh, yeah. yeah. So if you think of like uh, a pizza slice, um, like if this is the crust, the end of the pin, you know, there's a selection. And so if there, this is the gap of possibilities based on this, in process language, previous concrescence, um, God's like, this is the most beautiful, true and zesty thing trip. And I'm like, never mind. And this is what I do. Now the next moment is this, right? So, uh, but if, if you're, if you are faithful, then newer possibilities come into being over, over time. And in the book, um, I, I talk about, uh, the Jesus is impossible without the fidelity of Sarah and Abraham. Mm. It's impossible without uh, the experience of Exodus and the sending of the prophets and the struggle back and forth with our identity as the covenanted people of Israel. Like that whole process creates a space that in, uh, in I mean, we see it in the Gospel of Luke. When Jesus, uh, when Jesus is like in Mama Mary's belly, um, <laughs> she's like singing with the, this, the Magnificat's vision of the prophetic stream of Judaism mm. and the potential that from the very underside, uh, her child 
um, could come the one that overthrows and fills mm-hmm. up valleys and raises people up. Like that context is not like a, 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 a like a little elective for the incarnation. It's required and necessary. Jesus is born into a space where what he is prehending each moment, what he inherits um, from the past is the fruit of God's self-investment with Israel. Um, And so uh, then his own identity is shaped by it. Now, in the uniqueness of Jesus' identity that I talk about in the book is that, um, you know, a lot of Christians uh, are obsessed with Jesus being sinless and, uh, and somehow that sets up for high quality sermons at a youth retreat because they're like, Jesus, uh, he, he never touched himself at night. <laughs> um, or he didn't even look lustfully, you know, all those kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, and, and those are the, when you, when you look at it as sinlessness, then it's as if his identity as, uh, in mm. God is some like pure thing to be preserved his whole mm-hmm. life because he's so different. Um, an open relational context uh, flips it. It's not about sinlessness. It's about faithfulness, mm-hmm. uh, which shouldn't be too striking. That's literally the dominant image of God's identity through the Hebrew scriptures, right? But God's hesed love for the world. God keeps showing up with the covenantal partner can't manage. So Jesus's fidelity to God, full fidelity means that moment to moment, what is possible and available to God, Jesus says yes to the lure of God. So you could say, and I say it metaphysically true, <laughs> that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Why? Because each moment is this co-creation where God invests God's self in the world and the world receives what it can and manage. And Jesus inherits in his tradition, just like we in the body of Christ inherit the fidelity of Jesus, right? We, he inherited the Jewish tradition and his the, the piety his mother gave him and all these types of things. And then he was faithful to it. And so his fidelity meant that God's insistence of the gift of the divine life found existence through his own material being. Um, And uh, it's precisely the fullness of his humanity that gives flesh or materiality to uh, the fullness of God's dream for the world. Mm -hmm. And and so you get how you get incarnation without divine invasion. Yeah. Uh, And his fidelity uh, is what, as Christians, we participate in. Right. Yes. So Paul says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And as Christian, and now you know, if I've talked to friends that read this or, or academics, not Christians, they're like, this is really weird. Like you participate in Jesus. Like that's mm-hmm. kind of odd. Like, what does that even mean? Then I talked to uh, uh, Christians, one of my friends who's very reformed, uh, not into open relational. He was like, you want to know what the most compelling part of your book is? is it when you start talking about how this metaphysic enables me to say that Paul was not exaggerating when he says you participate in the mind of Christ. Mm-hmm. He said, because that's how I actually experience my life in prayer and those struggles of discipleship is whether I will let that same mind be in me. that was in Christ Jesus. And as a congregation and as denominations, we struggle with our identity. Say as American right now, we're clearly Mm -hmm. facing the question of white supremacy and dealing with it. Will we let the same mind be in us that was in Christ Jesus? Because I imagine there are, there are privileges we want to seize that we think are ours by divine right that we need to set down. Right. So anyway, you see how that functions. And I'm just saying that's literally open relational thinkers. You're inheriting the past. And as Christians existentially engaged in this story, that we're inheriting this and it shapes us. 
And, uh, and all of a sudden you're like, Oh, well, trip. Well then the, then, you know, well, what happens if you do greater things in Jesus? And you're like, he offered that as an option, greater things than these. Right. Or, um, the, so the, or the, in the synoptics, you get that he gives the spirit and then tells you to go do all the things he's doing. Um, so if you're thinking of it in classical terms, this is a, uh, uh, evolutionary Arianism where the existential engagement of the Christian through the fusion of the will of Jesus with uh, the one he called Abba, you have an emergent Trinitarianism for those existentially engaged in this particular tradition. It is like full of heresy. And yet um, uh, I, my goal in doing it, like I mentioned earlier, it's like I'm trying to use these tools to think about what it's actually like when you're in the body of Christ, experiencing uh, life of the spirit, participating in the community, um, and sometimes our tradition, we are more faithful to the language and ideas of the past than the reality of the living body of Christ in the present. And open relational thought became a pattern for me to rethink through a lot of the tradition and the scriptures and our confessions to try to get at the kind of pulsating heart of the body of Christ today. That's a great, trip, And I think like there's such a pastoral word there too, because like if we think of Jesus' sinlessness as, as, as that, exactly, he held he held the cup and didn't spill a drop for his whole life, you know. And then for us, it's like we're well, we're constantly told, "Well, you spilt, and thus now there's nothing you can do but have Jesus hold the cup for you." Um, whereas you know, this is a little more like you know, okay, is, is that kind of like just show up every day and try to do, I'm going to quote Frozen 2, the next right thing. Um, just try to like, you know, look for what God is luring you to, what, is, what it is the most beautiful and good and zesty, uh, you know, thing that you can do next. And, okay, maybe you didn't. That's all right. Now you've got another chance. And and also it's like you don't actually, and, and that means also off your shoulders is you need to be the saviour and, and actually solve everything in this moment and only good, only um completely perfect uh, and all-encompassing good deeds will do uh no little acts you know acts what they mean you know it's it's all like a part of this same mindness um so i think that's a real a pastoral word for those who are struggling to to be good and to or to have that kind of journey of trying to seek the mind of christ and try to seek to be the righteousness of god so i think that's that's very helpful you know when Paul uses the image in um, Romans about, you know, there's no place you can go to escape the love of God in Christ Jesus. You can go all the way to Sheol. Mm. Like, um, the, uh, it, you know, for within an open relational vision, like, that's exactly what happens every moment. No matter what just happened, God invests God's self in the next moment. And um, so if you're in Sheol or you're... Um, you know, anywhere in between heaven and hell, um, that is the very place God goes. And, and it's that type of, uh, image that I develop in the first half of the book with thinking through the person of Jesus, like the, one of the main topics in Christology, how the humanity and divinity relate and all that kind of stuff that sets up how I understand the work of Jesus, like what God did in Christ. And uh, a lot of times Christologies focus on one or the other, and, um, or, and they each begin with one or the other. So I wanted to uh, have it where technically I could have switched the order and started with the work, the salvation chapter, and then done the other or vice versa, but where um, there's an intentional continuity um, between the two, one where what God did uh, is actually expressed in the, in, in the fullness of the account of Jesus from 
uh, in an open relational context, in a sense, it's the whole cosmological picture down through the history of Israel, through the person of Jesus, and into the life of the church, and um, with the horizon of hope, um, of the eschatological hope in uh, in the process. So, mm. so, well, so we get the hope, and this was kind of going to be my final question, because um, you know we're getting into Advent, and at one point we're going to light that that hope candle. Uh, and I guess you've, you've already kind of been dealing with what that hope is, you know, if it's not, um, you know, um, a, a, total, a totalitizing coercive control is where our hope lies, but rather in this self-investing, in this presence, in this continual showing upness and this fidelity, that, that's where our, our hope is. So I guess, so the question can either be, yeah, so what is, you know, the hope then of self and what is the hope of self-investment or what the, in self-investment? Or I guess the other question could be in terms of hope is, is there a point where, so if God is always where we, we go to, right, next moment and then God's there again, next moment and then God's there again, fully ready, is there a moment that we and God arrive together in a, in a final sense, uh, in, in, a, in a complete sense? So rather than where God gets to us, we get, we are now in God. Uh, and is that a, a kind of a distinctive change? Um, or is that kind of just, you know, this is what continues um, and you just kind of get infinitely closer without ever ceasing? Mm-hmm. Okay, so, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I actually like both of those questions. Like, to the to, to the first one, I love the season of Advent. So, and the main reason is you spend time cultivating, uh, you're waiting for the coming of God, mm-hmm. right? So, the big prayer throughout is come Lord Jesus come. Right. And, uh, and, and that, uh, for in an open relational context that I think it has two layers. One is that like, yeah, when you pause and when you wait, you become more attentive of the possibilities before you that you didn't notice. And, and this is very basic. Like just the other day, like being in lockdown, all this stuff's so overwhelming. And I, I was just like frustrated. We're driving, and we're out in the highlands with our kids, which should be like one of those, the coolest moments ever. And I'm just like, thank you. I'm just beating myself up in the head of, uh, and, and then I get interrupted, uh, with a kid needing to go to the bathroom. And then I'm like sitting outside waiting for them and a stop where I have to get all masked up. This is unnecessary in my head. I'm like, I can't believe this. Now I'm going to be like to the campsite. I'm sitting out there waiting long enough that I like notice that I'm in the freaking highlands and the leaves are changing. And this is one of the most beautiful places on the planet. And then I'm like, what a gift. And then all of a sudden the same kid that came out of the bathroom that went in was all of a sudden this like beautiful image bearing gift of the divine. And I was so happy to see her. And then the day was different after that. Now it, the waiting made my attentiveness to the possibilities before me change. Mm. And Advent is a time where the church sits and waits and it sits there and waits and pauses. Like we're thinking about peace and what happened. How does peace show up differently when you're waiting? How does uh, joy and hope and love and these type of things and the, that waiting is there. And you know, one of the stories in that I use to think about the cross in uh, chapter four or five is uh the the Scrooge story, which is a Christmas story. Um, 
And, and I talk about, you know, when in an open relational context, the cross is not like something God had to do to Jesus or whatever. Um, and this type of thing. And it wasn't, it couldn't have been something in an open world that's necessary. Right. Mm. So in what ways is it revelatory and what is it accomplishing or in a different context because of the open and relational framework. Right. So, uh, but it is, uh, a use of Scrooge story to think about how the cross functions as a transferable nightmare. And so Scrooge gets visited by three ghosts, which correspond to the three powers open relational theologians believe <laughs> are operating at each point. It's brilliant. I don't know if Scrooge, if uh, Dickens wrote this just so that um, an open relational theologian could appropriate it, but he gets visited <laughs> by the ghost of Christmas past, right? The things you cannot change that you inherit the rest of your life. Mm. And goes, if you pause and wait and look, Scrooge, this is the death you've dealt and you need to lose some sleep. And then he's like, gets by Christmas present, right? And he goes, this is what's going on. Look at you, man, you need, you need to lose some sleep. Have you seen that tiny Tim, you know, and then gets visited by the ghost of Christmas future and goes, yeah, if you don't use this opportunity to rise to new life and live a different way, this is the death you're going to keep dealing. And guess what? Marley here, your best bud regrets your life. This is sad. Like your best friend, it basically is telling you right now you're walking dead. Why don't you try to figure out how to live before you really die? And what does Scrooge do at the end of that third nightmare? Falls in a grave because he saw his future grave, right? And he comes up out of it. And then the end of the story is the way in which the waiting process of, of the coming of Christmas. And the story, uh, he opened his eyes to his past what's going on in the present. And he chose to be faithful in new ways and create a different future. And it happened because he was blessed with the right nightmares. <laughs> and so the cross for me um, in the story, especially in the light of Advent, it's like how as we a people of privilege in the first world are blessed with the right nightmares. Because mm. think of how many things we put on our agenda we lose sleep about and get worked up about. Just scroll through your social media feed and go like, what makes me most anxious? And um, you know, like, will my best friend who wants the best for me haunt my ass about this? And it's likely the case, right? So the, the, that type of, uh, of waiting and getting the right nightmares is, um, I think, wonderful for Advent. Um, I would just say the last bit about your hope thing, um, the image of self-investment uh, and ultimate hope uh, comes from a frustration in some open relational theologies where they assume the doctrine of God is omnipotent deity. And then they're like, well, we are open relational. So we, now that God creates the world, God's going to tie one hand behind the back um, and God is self-limited. And now I'm going to do stuff. But if we need to assure ourselves of eschatological hope, boom, bring that second hand back out. And we just like, we got the eschaton. And so self-investment is trying to get at uh, that self-investment is not the alternative strategy of the omnipotent deity until eschatological hope needs to be assured. Mm. It's actually that God has refused to be God without us. And God gives God self each moment, moment to moment, God gives God self. So the eschatological hope is that that fusion of identity that happens in the person of Jesus through his uh, full response to the self-giving of God is the first fruits of new creation. Namely, where all of creation says yes to God's self-giving. So like, that's the hope. Um, and, but it doesn't involve coercion and it doesn't involve intervention. And so there are two parts about like, 
it is, it's not assured in the sense of at some point God will remove our agency and openness and just force it. Um, but also like, would you call that love? Um, most time, most countries around the world, if that type of, uh, uh, coercive intervention happens in a romantic context. It's called rape. So I don't know why we want to give God uh, eschatological assurance is that God takes away our agency that God gifts us with and breaks the integrity of creation. It's like, you're welcome. Mm-hmm. Right. I fix this over against your will. Um, that the picture of power is problematic. And then just, if you look at the death rate of world history, you're going to be like, this is how long it took you to break the rules and intervene. Like you were sitting there like during world wars going, you know, this ain't enough yet. I'm going to have to wait. They're going to have to really not cooperate longer. So like to me, that that, that self-limitation thing was so problematic. So I thought, how do you think through hope where the relationality and the love of God doesn't get dismissed? And yet you have genuine hope. And it's grounded in Jesus's full faithfulness. The resurrection is in, it, it then becomes the way you think through that as the first fruits of God's uh, uh, hope. And my confidence is that about the contrast between the infinite God of love and our finite uh, reality, mm-hmm. that the infinite God of love will forever be faithful um, until that happens. Yeah. And then in the next moment, God will do it again. And so if this sounds weird, then it's not too far from what Origen thought in the early church, which is where the initial uh, idea came from. In his book on first principles, first systematic theology written, he says like, well, there's a basic things all Christian believes. God is love. Free will is necessary. All this kind of stuff. So he's like, maybe everyone gets saved. And then um, but I don't know about Satan. And then maybe everyone's saved for like a billion years, but then someone falls again because God won't remove our freedom. Or does the way in which we're bound to God in perfect fidelity mean that our freedom is the freedom to love God and it becomes reciprocal for all eternity? He's like, I don't know. I don't know. But if we fell again and there's a fall, then I already know that in that next moment, God is invested. So that, like, that is the, uh, the movement that runs through it. That's beautiful. All right. Well, the book is Divine Self-Investment and Open and Relational Constructive Christology from Trip Fuller out with Sacrosage. You can check it, pick it up now wherever you're going to get good books. Uh, Trip, anything else you want to uh, draw folks' attention to at this moment? Um, I mean, they, if they like your podcast and they should come check out Homebrewed Christianity, they can just go to tripfullerwithtwopeas.com. Um, the, uh, and and if they if they want, I made a movie uh, yes. a year and a half ago um, called The Road to Edmund that um, I think now in most countries is on Amazon Prime. Uh, I keep finding out it gets added in different countries over time. <laughs> I don't know the logic, but if you want to watch a buddy road trip comedy with progressive spiritual themes, mm-hmm. um, then you can go check that out. Sounds so, good. Great. Well, thank you for this, and and people should go check all that out. We'll put some stuff in the show notes, and uh, thanks, Trip. Thanks for your time. That was a blast. (laughs) 